This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Page 729, in the middle of chapter 49 In the previous paragraph we learned how the whole world was created through tzimtzum. Hashem had to contract His infinite light. And His light remains infinite. And that's what we call sovev kalalman. It surrounds all the worlds and it encompasses all the worlds. But we don't sense it. We don't feel it. Just like when a person thinks, when you imagine an object, your mind completely, in your imagination, you completely surround the object. Yet the object doesn't feel that you're thinking about it. You don't see any connection between your thought and the object. The difference is that when we think about the object, the object only exists in our imagination. The actual object is not surrounded by our thought. When God thinks, His thought actually surrounds the object and the object is encompassed by Hashem's thought. But just like when a human being thinks... You don't feel anything. We can't feel, we can't access that, we can't comprehend, we can't sense that level of Hashem encompassing, all-encompassing light. It's there, it's within us, it remains unchanged, infinite, and yet we don't sense it, we don't feel it. And in order, from this infinite light, then you have the symptom that Hashem concentrates Himself to create a very specific individual being with its own very specific nature and characteristic. And there's so many species and there's so many variations. No two blades of grass, no two snowflakes are alike. Everything is so unique. No two human beings look alike. Although we come out from the same person, and yet none of us look alike and none of us think alike. And, you know, this variety. This comes about through the symptom. Hashem hides and conceals His light, His all-encompassing light. We don't sense it. And therefore all we sense is the the um, life force that we can grasp, which is the concentrated life force within us that we're conscious of. But, but the real, the primary life force comes from the all-encompassing light, which we don't sense. And all of the <laughs> worlds, from the highest to the lowest, is really made up of the same substance. The difference between higher and lower is only in the world of symptom, which creates something finite and limited, something we're conscious of, concepts, time, space, and therefore we have a hierarchy. There's higher, there's lower, there's a million, there's one, there's greater, there's smaller, there's richer, there's poorer, there's more colorful, more dull. All of these differentiations are only in the world of mamalikalama. God fills all the worlds, which is limited and finite. But the primary energy and vitality, which comes from God's all-encompassing light, there, all of the worlds are all, this, all made up of the same... God encompasses all of the worlds simultaneously. 
So therefore, all of the worlds are made up of the same substance. There's no distinction, higher or lower. It's all the same. And therefore, there's no barrier to God. Even in this physical world, while we're living in this physical world with all the limitations of this physical world, physical body, it's not a barrier to God because God is here and God is present and God is actual and immediate and right before us, within us, all around us. And therefore, you can worship God and you can come close to God and you can connect with Him. But here in this chapter, 49, he's taking it a step further. It's not only that because of God's all-encompassing light, which revolutionizes our whole approach, our whole understanding to godliness, that there's no distinction between higher and lower, heaven and earth. God is accessible. God is available. We can worship God. We can come close to God. Equally, in this world, just like the souls on high, but here he's going to say, no, that God is more manifest in the physical world than he is in the spiritual. He's more manifest in the material, in the body, than he is in the soul. And this is a truly startling, revolutionary statement and approach to life. It's not enough that all other religions emphasize the soul, heaven, the sublime, the spiritual, meditation, philosophy, love. Judaism is unique. Judaism emphasizes the deed, the action. The combination of body and soul. Okay, so you need body and you need soul. They're both equal. But in this chapter, he's going to bring out, no, it's not only that the body and the soul is equal. No. God is more present in the body than he is in the soul. God is more manifest in this world than he is in the upper realms. So much so that we're going to learn in a moment that the angels, the beings on high, are jealous of the Jewish people. Because they say, we don't know where God is. And where is God found? Here on earth. So it's not only that God is also accessible here on earth, while the soul is embodied in an embodied state, soul and body, but that God is precisely where is God found only in this world, not in heaven. As we say, when you make a blessing, what's the blessing? When you do a mitzvah, you make a blessing, Baruch Atah Hashem Elokeinu. Every one of us can say, Elokeinu, God is my God. Angels can't say, God is my God. Angels don't say, God is my God. We are the only ones in the universe who can say, God is my God. God is completely identified with us. Because the act of Tzimtzum, it's the ultimate expression of God's presence. God hiding God removing himself is the ultimate act of love. Like we learned last week. It's the ultimate presence of God. You're much more present. You express yourself so much more so in what you don't do than by what you do. Out of the 613 mitzvot, there are 248 do's, active mitzvot. 
that 365 don't. The overwhelming majority of mitzvot is prohibitions. Nothing happens. <laughs> Where's the action? But that is the greatest action. Nothing happens. That is the deepest action. The sign of character is not by what you do, it's by what you won't do. That's character. Removing yourself. Absenting yourself. Restraining yourself. Holding yourself in check. Concentrating yourself. Limiting yourself. That takes a lot more out of you. So it comes from a lot deeper place. I think it was a tell a story that President Lincoln once wrote his friend a 20-page letter. He says, the only reason I'm writing you a 20-page letter is because I have no time. If I had time, I'd only write you one page. (laughs) Because he would think. Before he put down every word, he would think. And he would write very precise and very concise. He had no time, so he just wrote whatever fell into his head without any editing, without any critical editing. So the act of removing yourself is actually a much greater presence. And where is the ultimate symptom? The ultimate symptom is in our world. And the purpose of all the contractions and all the reducing and the reductions and the limitation and the screening was all to come ultimately to create our world. A world that's hostile to Godliness. A world that's coarse, crass, materialistic, tangible, selfish, self-centered, egotistical. The antithesis of spirituality and Godliness. Not only where Godliness is limited, where the soul is hidden, and it's just in a potential, in a raw state, in a potential form, and we have to work very hard to realize and to actualize that potential. It's much worse than that. Alavai, that should be the only challenge we had. This world would still be a paradise. We have a much deeper challenge than that. The body is coarse and crass, and we are naturally selfish and self-centered and egotistical. The antithesis of God. So this is the ultimate symptom, the ultimate contraction. That God created a world that almost denies God. That's the antithesis of God. That proclaims I. I am. Because I am. There is no origin, there is no source, there is no beginning. There is no middle, there is no end. I am absolute and always will be. So this is the ultimate symptom, the ultimate hiding, concealment. Which is really the ultimate presence. It's the ultimate act of love. It's only because God loved us. Because He wanted to give us the ultimate gift of all. That we should become like God. We should become creators like God. We should have the choice. No one in the universe has the ability of choice. We, God gave us the ultimate gift, the ability of choice. That we can choose. And we can become creators and givers, just like God Himself. Heaven only, only receives. Heaven doesn't give. Heaven can create. Heaven is very sterile. Only in this world do we have the creativity. We have the ability to create. We have the ability to give. We have the ability to become partners with God in creation. So God gave us the ultimate gift. It's the ultimate act of Hashem's love. So God absenting Himself and hiding and concealing Himself and creating a space, so to speak, allowing us to breathe, allowing us to exist independently, At least consciously we feel we're independent. And allowing us to willingly, deliberately choose to do the right thing. Not having the right thing imposed upon us as it is in heaven. This is the ultimate act of love. It's the ultimate presence of God. 
This is, what he, this is the theme of this chapter, which is so powerful, so revolutionary, so profound, that it's only in this world. This world is the ultimate of all the world. This world is where the greatest presence of God is. Although it's so counterintuitive. And this was why Mount Sinai was such a revelation. Because it was a startling revelation. You could meditate for a thousand years. The angels sit and meditate day and night. They don't stop for anything. And they were startled by the giving of the Torah. They were opposed to it. Giving the Torah in this world, this world, this coarse, crass, materialistic world, which is in the best, in the best day, it's like a little tiny needle hole. How much light could you, could you fit through a needle hole? It's the smallest of all the worlds. The tiniest, the smallest, the least energy. Look at a stone. A stone, an inanimate object. It just sits there for thousands of years. You don't see any life. You don't see any signs of life. All you see is that it exists. That's the only sign of life. And that which basically describes our world. We are in the, in the hierarchy. We are like that stone. We are the lowest of all the worlds. So there's hardly any energy. There's no life. It's so tiny. It's like a little, window, a little tiny needle hole versus in heaven. You have huge windows. In a higher level of heaven, you have French windows. You have, you, have, you have higher windows. The light is shining and streaming through. No obstacles. In this world, you can't see anything. What? You can't, you can't, you can't. Where's the light? It's hard to find the light. It's so limited. It's so constricted. It's so narrow. But it's much worse than that. And yet we say, where is God found? Only in this world. Who can say, Elokeinu, God is my God? Not in heaven. The angels can't say it. We are the only ones who can say, Elokeinu, God is my God, my personal God. He, he puts His name on me. He's intimate with me. He married me. He's intimate with me. Just like the act of intimacy. God is totally with us. And every fiber, so to speak, every fiber is being, every bone in His body is totally with us, invested in us, concentrated within us. And we can honestly say, God is my God. God is with me. And I am with God in the palace in the king's bedroom, together with the king, intimate with the king. God sanctifies us with the mitzvah. This world more than any other world. This is revelation. The giving of the Torah was a startling revelation. No one, no other religion in the world came to this conclusion. On the contrary, all other religions highlighted, emphasized the spiritual, it's not about this world. This world is nothing. This world is a tiny needle hole at the best, in the best day. It's the other world. It's heaven, streaming light, saintliness. Not in this world. This world is dark. This world is too narrow and brutish and nasty and, and too limited. So no one would ever think in a million years that this is where it's at. This world. It's the body, not the soul. God is invested in the body and not the soul. More so than the soul. It's not only that the soul is divine, that the body is divine. This is, this is a startling revelation. So we have to learn 48 chapters to be able to get to this chapter, 49, to realize and, and this just it blows you away to realize it's such a, it changes your whole point of view how you look at this world how you look at yourself how you look at the 
potentially look at this is where Hashem is found. This is the meeting point between the Jew and God, between a human being and God. This is the Garden of Eden. This is the palace. This is where Hashem feels at home. This is this is where it's at. So why do we need Mashiach if we have Mashiach? Very good question. So as we learned earlier, you're right. Every time you do a mitzvah, that is a piece of Mashiach. The mitzvah is bringing, revealing that this is and bringing God into this world. It's revealing that God is at home in this world. That's why you do the mitzvah physically. Every time you physically do physically do a mitzvah. It's another piece, it's another stone in the temple. But now it's hidden. You don't sense it yet. When you walk down Park Avenue, you don't sense it yet. You don't exactly have an overwhelming sense of godliness. Not yet. Mashiach will come. You'll walk down Madison Avenue, you'll walk down Park Avenue, you'll sense godliness. It'll be revealed, it'll be manifest. Everything that we've, all the seeds that we've planted over thousands of years and all this divine energy and all the divine essence that we've brought into this world will suddenly become revealed and manifest. So that, that's Mashiach. So right now, we have the treasure in the box. It's there. We have the treasure and we have the key. All we have to do is open the treasure. Hashem gave us the key and He gave us the treasure. He says, all you have to do is just open it. Mashiach is ready to come. We're on the threshold. He gave us everything. Hashem gave us everything. It's all treasured. It's all stored. It's all there. We just have to want it. We just have to lift up our pinky and take the key and open it. And, and we'll cross, cross the door. Cross the threshold. Um, but that's what's going to happen. Mashiach will come. Mashiach will reveal everything that we've accomplished over the last 3,300 years. And that's what we want. We want it to be manifest. You know, it's not enough that Hashem is here, but it's a dungeon. Imagine inviting the king to a dark dungeon. You want to invite the king to a palace. You want, the king, you want your guests to feel comfortable. You want the king to feel at home. It has to be bright, clean, illuminated, welcoming. So... That's why we have to, that's why we yearn, we want the revelation, we want to see, we want it to be tangible, we want it to be palpable. We can see it, we don't have to talk about Mashiach, we can actually see it and feel it and experience it and sense godliness. That's what a Jew really wants. Which is why when a Jew asks requests for Mashiach in our generation, it's so much more powerful than the requests of the Jewish people for Mashiach in all previous generations which is why Mashiach is going to come in our generation as a result of our request and our genuinely wanting Mashiach. Because when a Jew wants Mashiach today, I mean, even with this economic crash and meltdown, the average person today lives far more luxuriously than even King Solomon lived. I mean, King Solomon could only dream. Even King Solomon, Chinese restaurant one day, Mexican restaurant the next day. On, on your iPad, and your iPad, you have the whole world at your fingertip. You can travel from one. You can travel every night. You can travel to a different city. Just on the internet, you just go. You can you can virtual travel. I mean, it's amazing to, what you can do today. You can accomplish today. You can achieve today. Um, so when a Jew is yearning for Mashiach today, 
you know, the average person, he has what to eat, he has what to wear, he's not. And yet, when Jews cry today for Mashiach, what are they yearning for? When a Jew had a pogrom, oh, he needed Mashiach. Save me from Hitler. Save me from, from Chalmanitsky. Save me from the Romans, from the Greeks. But, but what's a Jew, what's, what's he crying today? He's crying to Hashem, I need Mashiach now. What's the urgency? What's, the, what's he crying? What's he missing in his life? He's living so comfortably. It's the wealthiest generation that ever lived. And the answer is it's pure. It's purely spiritual. Because a Jew cries to Hashem, I want to experience godliness. It's not enough for me to talk about it, to study about it. I actually want to see it. I want to experience it. I want it to be tangible and palpable. I should feel it. I should walk down the street. I should feel it. And that's Mashiach. That's going to happen when Mashiach will come. So when a Jew is crying today for Mashiach, when a Jew is brokenhearted, that Mashiach isn't here, what's he brokenhearted from? He does not because he's suffering. Thank God, things are, it's okay. Our suffering, <laughs> our suffering, we, we, we know what the meaning of suffering is. I mean, the poverty, the poverty before World War II, the poverty of Eastern Europe, you know what poverty meant? And we, can't, we don't even, thank God, we'll never even know. We won't even have a clue what that means, thank God. Um, so, but we, we want Mashiach today for all the right reasons. So that's Mashiach, we want we yearn that it should be manifest, it should be revealed. So that this world, which is like a little pinhole, a little needle hole, this world will experience the greatest manifestation with the coming of Mashiach, with the greatest manifestation of the essence of God, which the ray and the light of Hashem that illuminates the heavens will pale in comparison to the illumination that godliness will illuminate this world, Hashem's essence will permeate this world, Hashem's essence will be revealed in this world. And this tiny world, that, that's the whole paradox of a whole creation. That's the whole paradox of the whole Torah, that God fit the, His infinite light into this needle hole. That God contracted Himself and limited Himself just out of His love for us. And He manifested His essence and invested himself, is intimate with us, invested himself. And he calls, we can call him by name, Elokeinu, God is my personal God. Because he's totally identified with each and every one of us. In this world. That this world could contain and receive such an intense revelation, the greatest revelation, more intense than the revelation in the heaven and the heaven of heaven. This is so astonishing. This is so counterintuitive. This goes against religion, it goes against spirituality, it goes against everything. It goes against heaven, it goes... This is, this is a revelation. This was the revelation of Mount Sinai, of the Torah. Such a startling revelation. And it caught us by surprise. It's completely unexpected. So this is what he's saying in this chapter. This is the ultimate... That the ultimate is in the physical, not the spiritual. God is more manifest in the physical than He is in the spirit. God's essence is more manifest in the physical than He is in the spirit. His expre- he expresses Himself. Yes, visibly, consciously, the light seems to be a greater reflection of Hashem. His light, just like the light of the sun reflects the sun, so God's infinite light is a reflection of Hashem. But the truth is, 
that it's in the tzimtzum, in God restraining himself and hiding himself and contracting himself, that's the ultimate presence of God. God is much more manifest and much more present. There's a greater presence in God hiding than when God is revealed in the self-revelation. So the essence of God is more expressed in the physical world than it is in the spiritual. And that's what he's going to, that's what he's explaining here. And we are up to, in the middle of the chapter, page 729, third paragraph. This will enable one. This will enable the one to understand the eminently reasonable explanation of the rabbinic enactment. Mishnah Berachot. Ordaining the recitation of the blessing of the Shema. Two blessings preceding it. And so on. So what do you mean so on? Here, as the Rebbe points out, here he's only going to explain the blessings that are preceding it. He's not explaining the blessings that come after the Shema. But he means so on, he means he's referring to the evening prayer. Even though the evening, two blessings before the Shema, the evening is like an abridged version. But nevertheless, they're the same theme as the two blessings, in a certain sense, are the same theme. They follow the two blessings of the morning. That, you know, the first blessing talks about God creates, you know, the luminaries, it creates time, it creates a day and night. And the second blessing talks about the love for the Jewish people. So his explanation that we're going to learn now that, that explains the two blessings that introduce the Shema in the morning you can apply this, those same explanations to the two blessings that precede the Shema in the evening. Okay. For at first glance, it would appear that they have no connection whatever with the recital of the Shema, as Rashba and other Alachic authorities have stated. Okay, so the question is, you know, many synagogues, they read, they do Arvit, they do the evening prayer, they do it in early, right after Mincha, yes. like down the block. They do Mincha at 7, immediately they do Arvit. So they pray the whole Arvit, the whole evening okay. service. And the custom is, we say the Shema. Why do you say the Shema? It's during the day. You haven't fulfilled the obligation to read the Shema. You'll have to read the Shema again later on at night. night. Yes. But nevertheless, since it's part of prayer, you say the Shema. And you say the two blessings that come before the Shema and the two blessings that come after. So the question was asked by Raj, the students of the Rajba asked them, when you read the Shema again at night, to fulfill the obligation to read the Shema at night, do you have to read the blessings over? Yes. And the answer is no. At night, when you, before you go to sleep, whatever, when you read the Shema, you just have to read the Shema, the three part, you don't have to read the two blessings before and two blessings after. Yes. Why not? They asked, why not? Before you do a mitzvah, you have to make a blessing. So he said, he answered that the blessing of the Shema, even though they're called the blessings of the Shema, they're different than all the other blessings of the mitzvah. Because all the other blessings of the mitzvah are directly connected to the mitzvah. The blessing is, blessed are you who commanded us to put on Philip. Blessed are you who commanded us to light a candle. Blessed are you who commanded us to, he- to, to, to hear the shofar, to eat the matzah. So the blessing is over the mitzvah. Here, we don't make a blessing. The blessings of the Shema are not, blessed are you God who has commanded us to read the Shema. We don't make such a blessing. There's no such blessing. The blessings talk about other themes. It talks about the angels. You can look in the prayer book. It talks about the angels, the blessings in the morning. It talks about the luminaries, the sun and the moon and the stars. And it talks about the angels. 
The second blessing talks how God loves the Jewish people. The, the blessings of the evening resemble that as well. The blessing, the first blessing talks about that God sets the times and the heavens and right. And the second blessing talks about his love for the Jewish people. Um, but there's no mention of Shema. So he says these blessings are not blessings for the Shema. We don't make a blessing to read the Shema. That's a whole other discussion. Why don't we? It's a mitzvah. And for the same reason, we don't make a blessing to bless. Before we bless, say grace after the meal. Why don't you make a blessing? Before we sit down to say grace after the meal, according to Maimonides, this is the only biblical, biblically obligated blessing. All other blessings are rabbinic. The only biblically obligated blessing is after you wash, after you eat bread, you have to say grace after the meal. So we should make a blessing. Just like before you do any other mitzvah, you eat matzah, you blow the shofar, you should make a blessing. Baruch, thank you, Hashem, for commanding us to bless, to say grace. And then say the grace after the meal. We don't do that. Because it's like saying a blessing on a blessing. You're not going to say something verbal on something verbal. To make a blessing on a blessing, you're not going to make. Although we do make a blessing on the Megillah. But we, to make a blessing on a blessing, you're not going to make. So to make a blessing on saying a blessing, the same grace after the meal. So to say a, say a blessing on the Shema, we're not going to make. That's one of the explanations, other explanations. But whatever it is, the blessings of the Shema are not your typical blessings of a mitzvah. They're independent. And that's why he said, since you already read the blessings of the Shema earlier, when it was still day, you said the Shema together with his blessings. So at night, when you're obligated to read the Shema again, to fulfill your obligation to read the Shema at night, you don't have to say it with the blessings. It doesn't require any blessings. It's, it stands alone. It's independent. So why are they call the blessings of the Shema? If that's the case. Why are they call the blessings of the Shema? So too, it says, if a person is in doubt whether you read the Shema, you forgot. I don't remember. I'm, I may have been sleepwalking. I was in shul. I sat there, but, but I was miles, thousands of miles away. I was thinking about my business trip. I was thinking about my conferences, my business deals. And I, and I wake up from my trance. I don't remember. Did I say the Shema? Didn't I say the Shema? So the law states, the Shema you have to read over again. Because since the Shema you're biblically obligated to do, any mitzvah that you're biblically commanded, when in doubt, you have to be strict. So you have to say it again. But the blessings of the Shema, you don't have to repeat. Since the blessings of the Shema are rabbinic, when you're in doubt, he give you the benefit of the doubt that you already said it, and therefore you're not allowed to say it again. You'll just be saying God's name in vain. So again, how could you read the Shema without the blessing? If you have to do the mitzvah again, you have to do it with the blessing. Because the blessings are independent. So why do they call them blessings of Shema? If they have no connection to Shema, obviously they have some connection to Shema. They call the blessings of the Shema. And we do say it together with the Shema. So he says, according to the, what we explained till now, now we'll understand why they're called the blessings of the Shema. What's the connection? In this, they're unlike other rabbinic blessings pronounced over mitzvahs, which, where each blessing refers explicitly to the mitzvah itself. As for example, the blessing of the one's friend. Why then were they termed blessings of the Shema? And why was it ordained that they be recited specifically before it, when they are in no apparent way connected to it? The altar Rebbe explains that the purpose of those blessings is to serve as a preparation to the Shema. 
The main objective of the Shema is attaining the love of God with both one's inclinations so that not only the divine soul, but the animal soul and the Yetzirah all come to love God. And for this, one must first meditate on the contents of the blessings of Shema, which describe the self-nullification of, of the angels and other creatures. Thus, the blessings preceding the Shema are indeed similar to other blessings. Just as the sages instituted blessings to be recited before performing any other particular mitzvah in order to make the person a fit receptacle for the beneficent flow he receives from its performance, so too did they institute the blessings preceding the Shema in order for one to properly perform that mitzvah. So that's why they're called blessings of Shema. Just like the blessings are a preparation to spiritually orient you, to do the mitzvahs, you have to prepare yourself, and the blessing puts you in the frame of reference, in the frame of mind, and prepares you to do the mitzvah. So too, the blessings of the Shema put you in the frame of mind and enable you to read the Shema. It's not just reading the Shema. The mitzvah is not just to mouth the words and to read the Shema. The mitzvah is to experience what you're reading. What are you reading? What's the mitzvah of Shema? What mitzvah are you reading in the Shema? The mitzvah to love Hashem and to love Hashem with all your heart. So in order to fulfill this mitzvah, to love Hashem with all your heart, the only way to do this is to put you in, this, in the right frame of reference, frame of mind, you have to read the blessings before. But the reason is the essence of the recital of the Shema is to fulfill the injunctions with all your heart, that is, with both inclinations, that a Jew should love God with the whole of his heart, even with his animal soul and evil inclination. That is to say, to withstand anything that hinders him from the love of God. For your heart alludes to one's wife and her children, to whom a man's heart is by his very nature bound. So have the sages of blessed memory commented on the verse, for he spoke and it came to pass, that this refers to one's wife. He commanded and it stood fast, that this refers to the children i.e. it is God's command that imbues a man's nature with the bond to his wife and children. These are your heart, the things to which this heart is bound, and they are not to hinder his divine service. And by your soul and might is understood literally, your life and sustenance, they too should not act as an impediment to spiritual service. All are renounced for the love of God. Thus, neither the things found within, the animal soul and evil inclination, nor those things without, one's wife, children, and sustenance, should hinder a person from those manners which lead to the love of God. So he builds up. First he says, love God with all your heart, meaning your internal self, including that part of you that's not spiritual, that part of you that's earthy and fun-loving and hot-blooded and is attracted to materialism. The hedonist Right. The, the ego, the natural self that's attracted to material things, doesn't appreciate finer subtleties, spirituality, godliness. But even that, even that part of you should also come to love God. That's the inner obstacle. Then you have the outer obstacles. We have our natural attachments to the things that we love, our heart, is connected to our children and our spouse and we are attracted to them, we love them and we care a lot about them and then there's our financial well-being our careers, our financial well-beings and any of these could be an obstacle like an obstacle course 
that gets in the way of my developing a relationship with Hashem. Who has the time? I'm so busy. Firstly, who, who wants to? A part of me has no interest. So that's a struggle, to get that part of me to also want and love Hashem. And then I'm busy with my wife, with my spouse, my husband. I'm busy with my children. And then I'm busy with my responsibilities, my career, my business. There's so many obstacles and legitimate obstacles. Not like the Torah tells you. It's your first obligation. You have to take care of your spouse and you have to take care of your children. But what the Torah is telling us to accomplish is to achieve such a level of dedication, which is unprecedented. How is it possible in this world, in this earthy, physical world, we are at best, we are that tiny little needle hole. There's so little spirituality that can come through because we just don't have the ears and we don't have the eyes and we don't have the... We're not tuned in to that frequency. We're tuned in to a very narrow frequency. We can only hear a little static. Sometimes something comes through and it's very static and you have to adjust the dials and you can barely make out the sound or the meaning. It's barely coherent. I mean, this is in the best of time. So how is it possible that we, who are so earthbound, such materialistic beings, how is it possible that we should have this incredible dedication to Hashem? We're so dedicated, even more so than angels. Because angels, if angels were married, they would lose their spirituality. <laughs> That's what it says. When God created the world, the angels complained. And then when they became corrupt, the angels said, you see, we were right. So God says, yeah, let me send you to this world and we'll see. Last week's Torah portion. And he said, the fallen angels. And he sent them to this world. And they got married. And we, that was the end of them. <laughs> and uh, they, cor- they became corrupt and they corrupted the whole world. And that led to the flood. And it was a disaster. Because they couldn't handle the realities of this world. They couldn't integrate spirituality with being down to earth, with earthiness. And here, a human being who's so finite and so limited and so challenged from within and from without, we have this incredible dedication to Hashem that nothing gets in our way. No matter how busy we are, no matter what distractions we are from within, from without, from right field, from left field. And yet, we keep our head above water we love Hashem. We develop a relationship with Hashem. We find the time to focus and concentrate and meditate that Hashem is one and nurture and nourish our neshama and study Torah and do a mitzvah and pray and do good deeds and do acts of goodness and kindness. So we, we, we manage to... We, how is this possible? How is it possible that the human being should be able to have this incredible dedication? Now, there was a time... The first generation of Jews, they didn't have the blessings of the Shema. Because they didn't need any help. They were, such, they were so spiritually in tune that the moment they said the Shema, they immediately experienced the love for God. Their heart was inflamed. And they experienced love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with every fiber of your being, with all your financial well-being, with everything that you have. Love God. They immediately were able to accomplish it. That's why they didn't need blessings. They didn't have all of that. The whole rabbinic structure of prayers and blessings that we have today, they didn't have it and they didn't need it. 
But we are like the spiritually retarded. And someone who's mentally a child, who unfortunately is mentally challenged, you can't take anything for granted. A child who, a normal child, is able to learn things instinctively. A child with special needs could learn a lot, if not everything. But they have to point it out to them. They have to be taught. They, can't, they don't pick it up automatically. They need a lot of therapy and a lot of help. And every, the wise parent and the wise educator uses every moment to become a teaching moment. Oh, let's learn something, let's learn something. And constantly learning and training the mind because he can't take anything for granted. That's the difference between a special needs child and a regular child. Regular children, even if you don't teach them, they'll pick it up automatically, instinctively. A special needs child won't. If you point it out to them and you train them, they will pick it up. So too spiritually. In the times of the temple, the first temple, in the era of prophecy, the Jews were like regular children. I mean, they just instinctively, they got it. They said the Shema and they immediately got it. And their hearts were inflamed. They didn't need this whole preparation. But by the time the second temple came around and it became the end of the era of prophecy, we became like spiritually special needs children. Without responding naturally anymore. We don't respond to godliness. It's not natural. It's not instinctive. So the rabbis gave us a whole structure to point it out to us. Every moment becomes a teaching moment. You come out of the bathroom. Stop and think. The miracle of how the body works. The miracle of creation. Every moment you're eating, stop and think and make a blessing. Realize the miracle of existence, the miracle of this cup of water. Every moment, the most natural event, suddenly becomes a teaching moment, a learning moment, a moment to reflect, a moment to realize and to have that insight and to realize and to make that connection. So, how, so therefore, we need help. So, in order to get to the level of Yahafta, to love Hashem with all your heart, to get even your ego and your natural self to be on fire with Godliness. And then to make sure not to be distracted and to be able to overcome all other obstacles. That your attachments, your material attachments should not get in the way, should not be an obstacle to your relationship with Hashem. You should still find the time and the energy and the interest to develop your relationship with Hashem and to cultivate and to nourish and to nurture that relationship. And don't use your relationship with your spouse, with your wife, with your husband, your relationship with your children, or your relationship with your business and your career as an excuse. I have no time. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I'm too busy doing things that you love doing and doing things that you're obligated to do. So to be able to overcome that, you need help. And that's why the rabbis instituted the two blessings. The blessings of the Shema that precede the Shema, which enable us, which only through these blessings that we're able to achieve this incredible dedication, incredible devotion, which we don't even find amongst the angels in heaven. Of course, the angels are much greater than, than us, externally. But if you look deeply, we are greater than the angels. And that's what we read about in the Shema. That's what the, the blessings of the Shema, that's what the angels say. The angels realize and acknowledge that we have something that they don't have. God's presence is on earth, not in heaven. Because the dedication that we have doesn't exist in heaven. Despite the darkness and despite the obstacles from within, in heaven there are no obstacles. In heaven everything is clear. There's clarity. It's crystal clear. You don't need faith in heaven. 
But in this world, we need faith. There's so much darkness and so much hardship and so much difficulty and so much anguish and so much lack of clarity. And, you know, as the previous Babbage Rebbe said, and not understanding we're billionaires, we're trillionaires. There's so much we don't understand. There's so much that's not clear. And yet, despite all of that, we're so dedicated and we love Hashem with all our heart and with all our soul, with all our might. This is something astonishing. So how is it possible? So in order to achieve that, that's why we read the blessings of the Shema. Well, how can physical man attain this level of godly love that nothing can obstruct? It is to this end, therefore, that the blessing of Yetzirah was introduced to be recited first. For in this blessing, it is stated and repeated at night. And this meditation must indeed be a lengthy one, taking into account all the specific details. The account of order of the angels standing at the world summit. In order to proclaim the greatness of the Holy One, blessed be He, how they are all nullified in His blessed light, and pronounce in fear and sanctify Hashem's name and declare in fear, holy, meaning by saying holy that He is apart from them and does not clothe Himself in them in a revealed state. But where is Hashem revealed? The whole earth is full of His glory namely the community of Israel above. That is, He says, when the, when the angels say holy, they don't mean that they grasp God's holiness and they're proclaiming God's holiness. Because if they were proclaiming God's holiness, they would be completely nullified. Who is proclaiming? They are proclaiming God's holiness because precisely they, they don't understand God's holiness. The word holy means they don't understand. God is transcendent. God is beyond us. God is beyond our comprehension. God is, we cannot comprehend God. That's why they're standing and they're proclaiming. We don't get it. We don't understand it. God is beyond our grasp. God is beyond our comprehension. As spiritual as we are, as sublime as we are, we simply can't grasp God. God is beyond us. That's what, they, that's what they proclaim. That's what they understand. They understand that God is beyond their understanding. Totally beyond them. That they don't have the tools with which to understand God. It's not only they don't understand God. They can't understand God. You don't have the tools. Like a blind person. You think a blind person can know what the sight is like? Someone who's born blind. It's impossible. It's impossible. He, he, he never saw in his life. He doesn't even have... You know, if you don't have it in you, you can't... Our whole understanding is based on our personal experience. You relate to something, you connect to something because of your personal experience. A blind person who's born blind can't relate to sight. He doesn't know what that means. He doesn't know what colors mean. He can say the words, but it means absolutely nothing to him. He, can't even, he doesn't know what it means. So the angels, not only the angels don't know God, they can't know God. We don't have what it, we're not God, so we don't have within us, we don't even have the tools. As a modern physicist says, that the whole known universe has come to the conclusion that the whole known universe is 4% of the universe. 96% of the universe is unknown. Not only is it unknown, we can't know it. We, we don't even have, we will never know it. We don't even have the tools with which to begin to know it. So that's what the angels mean when they say, Kaddish, God is holy. We can't understand. God is totally beyond our comprehension. It's not like the concept is so deep, I don't understand it yet. Give me a, come back to me in a week. And I'll explain it to you. You know, give me a, a week, it'll sink in, it'll settle in, and then I'll explain this very deep concept. Holy means I'll never understand, I can't understand, I don't have what it takes to understand. God is totally beyond me, and that's why they're standing and proclaiming. 
it bothers them. It bothers them that, and therefore they yearn. They want to be, they want to come close to God. But God is beyond them. God is totally beyond them. And where is God found? This level of holiness that totally transcends the level of the angels and spirituality and meditation and religion. Where is this God found? But where is God revealed? But where is God revealed? The whole earth is full of people, mainly the community of Israel. Oh, the source of Jewish souls, which is called earth, and Israel on this earth below, within Jews perform Torah and Mitzvah. For which reason, specifically in this world fulfilled with his glory, it is here that God flows and reveals himself, as has been explained earlier. All of the above refers to the comprehension of the supernal angels and the seraphim, who are able to comprehend how God is apart from them and that only the earth is charged with his glory. So, too, we find related blessing of Yotza or regarding other categories of angels whose place is the lower world than the seraphim and who are therefore unable to comprehend how godliness is separate and apart from the opening and the holy with a mighty sound declare blessed be the glory of the Lord and may it be drawn down from its place for they neither know nor do they comprehend his place, place from which godliness is revealed, for which reason they say, from its place, wherever that place may be. As we say a few lines later, for he alone is exalted and holy. The various degrees of nullification of these angels are thus spoken of in the first of the two blessings preceding the Shema. When a person meditates on his matter, he will begin to understand God's greatness and for the lofty angels are nullified to him. Okay, so you have different levels of angels, different worlds. The highest level of angels, they understand, they fully understand how they cannot understand. <laughs> Very often it's... Um, highly, highly intelligent, knowledgeable, sophisticated people who say... Well, you know, the more I know, the more I know, I don't know. And then it's always, you know, not to be uh, judgmental, but people who are a little more limited. Who they are, always and, know. They always know. They always, they've covered all the knowledge in, in their mind, the, the little right. of it that there is, and they're always mouthing off and saying, how do you know that? You know how they, the, the ignorant speak with a certain amount of conviction? Right. You know, and right. it's the opposite yeah. when you're really... Hundred percent. The the, the the Nobel Prize winner, the Einstein. Right. You know, he senses the vastness. It's like a huge ocean. Maybe he understands a drop. Maybe you know, but he's he realizes how little he knows, and he's open. Wherever he can get an idea, he can learn from everyone because he's open. Versus the one who's wet behind his ear, he knows for certain. He knows everything. Um, Isn't this counterintuitive? Uh, I mean, how can the angels be proclaiming holy, holy, holy if they don't know? No, but that, no, that's what holy means. Holy means I don't know. God is beyond me. Holy is not a description of a level. 
that I grasp God's holiness. On the contrary, holy means I grasp that God is beyond me. I cannot grasp God. So how can they even say holy? No, but, holy? but that, that they know. You can understand that you don't know. The difference between the ignoramus who says, I don't know, and the person who's knowledgeable, and the ultimate knowledge is when you come to the realization that I don't know. But I know that I don't know. He says it, He's and, he, right, and he knows that he doesn't know. Also, an ignorant, a person who's ignorant can also say, I don't know. But when he says, I don't know, and Einstein says, I don't know, it's two different I don't knows. He doesn't know because he never learned anything. He really, you know. But then there's knowing that I don't know. You know, knowing there's more to know. No, knowing that's more, or, or like the modern, you know, modern physics. Once you get, you got to the cutting edge of, of science and modern physics, you realize the paradoxical nature of reality. You realize it totally defies logic. So you realize I don't know. It's beyond my comprehension. How you have particles wave simultaneously? It's an ultimate paradox. It's squaring the circle, but I, it's a fact. So I know that I don't know. So it's it's humbling. And it opens your mind, because I know that I don't know. So your mind becomes open, and your mind becomes, you know, yearns for something that defies the mind. That's the idea of them saying, holy, holy, holy. They know that God, and they're proclaiming, God is beyond us. God is totally beyond us. And if they yearn for Godliness, that's why they're on fire. But it's a very quiet that's why versus the other angels, the lower level of angels, it's, it's very noisy. It's very noisy. Who makes noise? As the Talmud says, like you said earlier, an empty pushka makes a lot of noise. There's one coin in there and the whole world hears. A full pushka doesn't make a sound. So to a person who's full, full of content, quiet, unassuming, doesn't make noise. A person who learned one word and he's already... He's so taken with himself. He's a legend in his own mind. If you, have any, if you have any doubt what a genius is, he'll be the first one to tell you. He makes noise. You know, you can't stop ringing, ringing the bell. You can't, you know, you can't stop blow, blowing from himself and pushing himself. And, but there's nothing, there's nobody home. There's nothing there. Void. Void. Versus the person who's really full, doesn't, doesn't, quiet, shah, still, no ego, no arrogance, no embellishment, no exaggeration, doesn't have to push himself. You know, who pushes himself to the front? Who's usually the first one to push himself to the front? The one who belongs in the back, pushes himself to the front. The one who really belongs in the front doesn't mind sitting in the back. That's not, you know, that's, that's for the angels who don't understand. They're not on the level of, the angels of Israel, who are from the world of Bria, the world of pure intellect, they're more the emotional angels, the practical angels. So they, but they get very excited. They're just excited, but they don't understand. When you don't understand something, you make a lot of noise. So they're making a lot of noise, a tumult. When you're next to the king, it's quiet. And the palace is dignified, it's quiet. The library is quiet. <laughs> Stadium, it's noise. <laughs> you know. The more intellect, the more, the deeper, the more profound, the more subtle, it's, it's, it's quiet. The more superficial, external, emotional, less, less light, more heat, less light, it's, it's tumult, it's, it's, it's noisy, it's, 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 the whole world here is coming. Walks through the door, you know, a mile away, everyone knows that the next storm is walking through the door, you know. It's quiet, more internal, it's quiet, it's subtle. So that's the difference between the angels and the different reactions. But they also say, even the other angels say, where is God? We don't know where God is, but where is He? Wherever He is. 
Where is that place? With the Jewish people in this world. Not in heaven. They know God is not in heaven. They don't know where he is. They don't know, they don't know his place exactly. But they know that he's with us. He's in this world, in the lowest of all the worlds. So when, when a Jew reads the Shema, the blessing of the Shema, the first blessing of the Shema, and you realize in the morning, in the morning, and the same idea is, in, the, same idea is the night blessing, and you realize that all of these great intellects and profound comprehension, and they're all nullified before God, and they're all like nothing before God, then it has a profound impact on us. You know, when you see the angels, and the angels are the source of our egos, of our natural self, souls. So when we see the angels are completely nullified before God, it helps us also, because it tells us that our nature, pure nature, is not negative. It's like an animal. An animal is not negative. It just, it's, just, it's an animal. It's a pure desire. It's a desire. An animal naturally and instinctively um, is pulled, pulled downward. So you have to guide the animal. You have to direct the animal. You have to, you know, you, you, ever, you ever went on horseback riding and the animal stops and if it was up to the animal, it would stop and eat the grass. It's not interested in... <laughs> you have to take it and give it a little... <laughs> little zets, you know, to, to get his attention. Come on, move, move. Um, otherwise, all it wants to do is it wants to eat. Sometimes it doesn't know when to, you know, you have to, sometimes you have to protect it. Sometimes it's eating grass that's poison, it's no good, you have to watch it. So the animal itself, the animal within us, is not necessarily bad. We want to have fun. Not necessarily negative things, we want to have fun. Life should be fun, thrilling. Entertainment, exciting. There's nothing wrong with that. But the only difference is we associate fun with external things, indulgence, superficial things. We don't realize what real fun is. Coming to Shul, <laughs> coming to Tanya, studying Torah, doing a good deed, doing a mitzvah. Okay, so you have to educate the animal. Once you realize where does this animal come from, where does this energy, this desire come from? It comes from the angels. The source of the animal soul is the angels. And what do the angels want? The angels are spiritual beings. So that's my source. That's where I come from. So therefore, what do I really want? In other words, if you really go deep down, if you strip away the externals, what do we really want in life? We're yearning for something. We're hungering for something. We're yearning for something. We want something. What do we really want? You think you want something external, superficial, skin deep, materialistic. But the truth is, we talk about the angels because that's really us. Deep down, what does our egos want? What does our natural selves want? What are we really looking for? What we're really looking for is, is something spiritual. That's who we really are. That's, our, that's the essence of our animal soul. Look at its root, look at its source, which is the angels. What are they all about? What are they yearning for? What's their life? What's their aspiration, their goal, their ambition in life? To become one with God, to become nullified before God, because they're seeking God. So, so what are we really seeking for? We think we're seeking Las Vegas, or seeking this or that, but the truth is, 
what we really want in life, what we're really seeking for. We want to have fun. We want energy. But what's real energy? What's real life? It's only godliness. That's life. That energizes us. That makes us vibrant, alive, vigorous. So, so it helps us reorient ourselves. This helps us fulfill the mitzvah, love God with both your heart, with your godly soul, together with your ego soul, your natural soul. So you're pulling in every part of you suddenly it feels an, a pull and an attraction to God. So that's the effect of the first blessing. But then comes the second blessing, and he's going to tie in the second blessing with the first blessing in, in a novel way. Okay? And then we come to the second blessing. Um, you know what? We'll save the second blessing to next time. Usually the last few minutes we open up any questions, comments, thoughts. Yeah, um, to love God with your ego soul and learning. Not only with your godly soul, which naturally loves God, but even to love God with your... Your ego should also love God. Your fun-seeking, thrill-seeking self should also develop a, a feeling, a taste for godliness. You want to have fun, but you should educate yourself. You know, know what fun is? real fun you want energy you want life what's real life source of life Hashem the more plugged in we are the deeper our connection the more alive we are the more recharged we are the more rejuvenated we are pun intended it says here uh, uh, but the animal soul and the Yetzirah also come to love God. Right. I mean, what's the difference between the animal soul and the Yetzirah? The Yetzirah is the expression of the animal soul. It's an aspect of the animal soul. The animal soul is the ego, your natural soul. That part of you that wants to live, self-preservation, continue existence, continue your ego, continue your existence. Part of that whole soul is the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is that pull, that siren, the red siren that pulls you towards instant gratification, indulgence, materialistic pleasures, and pulls you away from the more subtle, the more refined, the, the intangible, the godly. See, it's interesting, like, um, you know, in therapy, they talk in terms of um, tolerating, you know, the Yetzirah, for example. I think we talk in terms of vanquishing the Yetzirah. In other words, if you can tolerate it, then it's not as intense a feeling so that then you can live with it, so to speak. Here we're not talking only about vanquishing, but here we're talking about something more than vanquishing. We're talking about transforming. It's one thing to vanquish the enemy. It's another thing turning the enemy into a friend. The godly soul is very ambitious. Not happy just to vanquish, to defeat the ego, the natural soul wants to transform the natural soul. You should want to do the right thing. Not only to suppress your urges and instincts, but you should want to do the right thing and you should be repulsed. And you should not want to do something that's wrong. Godly soul is very ambitious, very ambitious fellow. Wants to totally, not just conquer the body, conquer you, wants to totally transform you. And then wants to ride the horse. And when you ride the horse, you can get a lot further. A person could walk, but you'll never get you as far as if you ride the animal. The animal can take you places you can never go to on your own. So if you're only serving God with a godly soul, it's very limited. 
It's only by engaging your animal soul, that thrill-seeking self, that, that fun-seeking part of you, and, and, and you harness it, and you sublimate it, and you teach it, and you reorient it and shift it to realize that, that this is what you want, this is where you're going to get your energy from, this is where you're going to nash from, this is wholesome, this is what you're really looking for, and it starts wanting and enjoying shul. Instead of shul, you know, but something that you enjoy. You enjoy learning. You enjoy doing an act of selflessness, of goodness and kindness. You enjoy connecting with Hashem. It becomes joyful, passionate. The animal soul is ego. It's a whole soul. It's a soul. The Yetzirah is your emotion. It's the emotional expression of your ego. That's all it is. Just like the Yetzirah Tov. There's the godly soul. It's a soul. As we learned in Tanya earlier. Chapter 2. And versus the ego is a soul. As we learned at the end of chapter 1. You can look it up in lessonsintanya.com. It's a garment? Not a garment. It's a soul. No, no. But the emotions is an aspect. Emotions are not garments. Emotions is your personality. It's your character. It's you. But it's, it's an aspect. As a result of your ego, you're pulled, you're attracted towards materialism. So that's your emotions speaking. As a result of a godly soul, you have feel a pull towards godly things. That's your godly emotions. But it's, it's, a, it's a result of a whole soul. Because your godly soul senses godliness, that's why you desire and you're attracted to godly things. Because your ego nature is very earthbound, that's why you're naturally emotionally attached to materialistic things. Pull of gravity, it pulls you down. That's a Yetzirah. Yetzirah like instigates you. It's like a Madison Avenue hype. It, 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 it's like instigating the bull. You know, it's like uh, getting, it's trying to get you all excited about materialistic things. That's a Yetzirah. It, it finds ways to get you excited about indulgence, about living a superficial lifestyle, about and taking you away from, distracting you from your godly soul. The godly soul fights back. The godly soul, mm-hmm. the Yetzirah is trying to entice you and trying to excite you about doing the right thing and being good and being kind. So that's, but so that's the Yetzirah Tov is just an aspect of the soul. The angels, what is the, 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 what is the necessary necessity of those because they transmit the order of Hashem to us. So, why do we need this intermediate? Well, we just learned, without the angels, the angels is what gives us strength. Because when we realize that the angels are us. (laughs) Because that is the source, the root of the animal soul within us. Our egos, our animal soul. But the animal soul within us is very far away from its root. It's very far away from its source. It speaks a different language. The angels are pure spirits. Our natural ego souls are talking a different language. They're they're talking highfalutin Hebrew and my animal soul is talking mamalash. We're not talking the same language. But then when you realize you reconnect your animal soul with its source, look at the angels. Look how they're serving God. Look how completely nullified before God. Look how they're yearning for God. And that's what they want in life. That's the whole life. That's the whole ambition. That's the whole desire, the whole yearning. All the time. And that's you. That's who you really are. 
So we think that we are physical beings who occasionally have spiritual experiences. What the first blessing of the Shema reminds us is that we are spiritual beings that are having human experiences. But essentially we are spiritual beings. We're like angels in a body. And even our animal soul, its origin is the angel. So what we really want is like deciphering. The angels help us decipher, interpret what we're really saying to ourselves. You think you want to have fun, you want something, you want that donut. That's not what you want. Yes, you're looking for something, you're yearning for something, you're you're restless, you're looking, but what are you really looking for? A little Torah. That's what you're looking for. You don't realize it. But by, by the angels, and thinking about the angels, and thinking how they serve Hashem, and they're on fire, and they're constantly yearning, and and the lower level of angels are creating a tumult and the, you realize that that's me. That's what I really want. That's who I really am. Don't be confused for a moment. Don't think for a moment that you're not. That's who you really are. And that's what you really want. And that's the only thing that will really satisfy you. So that can help you lift you up. That can help you turn around. That can give you the strength that you need in order to feel that love for Hashem and get your ego to love Hashem that pull, that attraction towards godly things. So in order to be spiritual, in order to achieve that level of spirituality, we need the angels. We need that whole realm, that whole realm of angels, of spirituality, of egolessness, of selflessness, of energy, pure energy, and love, and light, and goodness. That gives us the strength. But it's all for our sake, like he said earlier. All of the worlds, the upper worlds, the higher realms, is all created for our sake. That's why in Rosh Hashanah it says the angels are, are judged. Why are the angels judged? Why are they punished? What did they do wrong? They're, 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 they're the Boy Scouts. They don't, they're perfect. They haven't done anything. Because if we are punished, then they are punished. The whole purpose of the angels is for us. So if we're not living up to ourselves, our potential, then the angels get demoted. The angels are punished. You know, because... Their whole being is just for our sake. So the angels should help us. They're trying. <laughs> we have How to. Are they trying? We have messengers. to. We have to be uh, open. We have to. Every Shabbos we say Shalom Aleichem. The angels are escorting us all yes. the time, but we we have to be open to it. Um, it's more difficult to be a mensch than it is to be an angel. <laughs> it's easy to be an angel. Be a mensch. That's, that's why the soul is superior to an angel. But the angel is the source of our natural souls, of our ego. That they're glorifying beings. what? Yes. Yeah. And therefore, that gives us the strength to be able to deal with our egos. Continue. To be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.